0: Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We're pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting, let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. I thought I'd have to choose between an IT degree and certifications, until I found WGU. There, I earned both through one program. WGU prepared me to earn certs from CompTIA and others at no extra cost. WGU IT bachelor's and master's degrees have no set class times. Rather, students progress at their pace, completing as many courses as they can each six-month term.
1: I graduated faster, and you could too. Learn more at wgu.edu.
0: Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today, you know his name, that's for sure, Martin Dugard. How do you know his name? Well, he's the co-author with Bill O'Reilly of the Killing series. But today, we're going to talk about his latest book, which I can tell you is simply terrific. We'll put a link to it so that you can purchase it after you listen to the podcast. It's called Taking Berlin. The bloody race to defeat the Third Reich, Mr. Dugard. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, you've written all these books. I, I had written this like kind of flowery uh, uh, introduction, and then I've decided to chuck it all and just laugh and say, "You need to go to his website." And the one thing you'll find about Mr. Dugard is he is not a couch potato. <laughs> between electric shock and running the bulls and various other things he's been around the world and that came through to to me that came through in your book that you were able to do in a in a really succinct and helpful way to put the perspective of the world into why this race to berlin took place so first let me say ask why was there a race to Berlin on behalf of the Western powers in World War II, basically against their Russian allies or Soviet allies? And why was this race important?
1: Oh, good questions. Um, You you would think that with with the Soviets being our ally, that we wouldn't have any competition, that we would all just work together to, to get there. But, you know, the Soviets were already sowing the seeds of what would become the with the, you know, the great Soviet post-war empire and the Warsaw Pact nations. You know, the Soviets have been invaded so many times and devastated by the many invasions that they wanted to get a, a series of buffer countries around them. So, you know, Poland and, you know, Bulgaria and, you know, Yugoslavia. But uh, going back to the race to to get to Berlin, everybody just wanted to get the war over. You know, after D-Day, everybody was predicting the war would be over by Christmas. and. And people just wanted to crush Hitler as soon as possible, but um, it didn't work out that way. Especially after the fall of Paris, things kind of fell apart as far as the the pace of the adventure. And the, the, you know, Patton and Montgomery got hung up on the Western Front, right on the German border. Uh, the Soviets were pushing into Germany through ap- after Operation Bagration, Be- which was their version of D-Day, which was this massive invasion. Um, but the Germans weren't defeated. You know, as we saw at the Battle of the Bulge. So, that, you know, I like to say that the last nine months of the war you know, laid the foundation for the post-war world and even the world as we know it now, but it was supposed to be a cakewalk and instead it turned out to be some of the most vicious fighting of the world, of the, of the war.
0: You have several interesting personality studies, character studies as part of your book, and I'd like to go through those uh, quickly if we could and then start kind of start our own race to Berlin. Uh, If you look at the cover of your book, the most prominent face is four-star General George S. Patton. Um, Most of us, maybe we've read about him, but clearly a lot of our opinions about Patton are formed from the movie. What did you think about when you were doing the research? Like This guy is actually the way George C. Scott portrayed him. And why was important for Patton, in your view, not to make you an amateur psychologist, but to get so much glory?
1: Oh, well, um, you know, the, first of all, you know, h- historically, the movie Patton holds up really, really well. I mean, it's when you go back through um, you know, after having written about Patton in, I think, three or four different books, that movie really holds up well. Um, what pe- m- most people don't know is that Patton didn't have that George C. Scott gravelly, low voice. He actually had a very high pitched voice and, uh, you know, not, not girly, but in a higher register. And so for him to command respect, despite that high tone shows that he he had a gravitas towards him. Um, I don't think Patton was really as much of a glory hog as people think, but I do know that he had trained his entire adult life. Um, as a warrior, you know, West Point graduate, you know, stayed in the army after world war one at a time when his career was going absolutely nowhere. And he realized that world war two, in particular though, um, the advance from, from the Normandy beaches, where he, where he was, where he wasn't in the D-Day invasions, but he had, from the Normandy beaches all the way to Berlin, he knew that this was his last shot. There was, he was never going to see a war on this scale ever again. He you know, he was a big fan of armor. He was part of the armor contingent that, that, you know, gathered secretly in May 1940 to kind of shove the cavalry out of the U.S. Army and you know, let the tank people take over. And, and he was also a big proponent of close air cover. So he was doing things that people weren't really doing at that time, but he also knew that there wasn't going to be another chance, so he'd better make the most of it. And that's why, and I think Montgomery was the same way, I think, but that's why the two of them um, – were so competitive with one another because both were great generals in their own right, two completely different styles. But they, um, they knew that when World War II was over, it, they weren't going to like Patton wasn't going to go to the Pacific. There was no way that Douglas, Douglas MacArthur was going to let Patton go to the Pacific, and,
0: which is in the movie. He actually Scott says that there's no way he'll let me over there.
1: Yeah, no, no there's no, and you know, and and I think MacArthur is a vastly inferior general. So um, just my opinion, <laughs> but. All right. uh, You know, but I think um, I like I'm very drawn to Patton. You know, he's easy to write about because he's got these, you know, his moods go from, you know, very patriotic and very uh, courageous all the way down to very low and very almost depressed. You know, he just had these moments, if you read his journal, where he had grave doubts. He had bouts of great anger towards some of the powers that be, particularly Eisenhower, that were trying to slow him down. So He's a a very complex character, and from an author's point of view, that's pure gold. He's great to write about. You
0: mentioned Eisenhower uh, very quickly. Patton and Eisenhower were friends before the war, close friends. Patton, I believe, was his superior, and it's pretty clear, it's more than clear, it's fact, their personal relationship deteriorated significantly at the close of the war until Patton's untimely death, which you can read about if you read Killing Patton by Martin (laughs) Dugard and Bill O'Reilly. What happened to the Eisenhower-Patton relationship?
1: Well, you have to remember about Eisenhower is that he never commanded, commanded men in battle. He was very much a logistical genius. He'd always been a staff officer, especially in the years before the war. and he 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 just had a gift for organization and diplomacy uh, the, the british they, this this caused the british to not think much of him as a wartime right. leader um patton knew better than to say that you know to eisenhower's face but he felt the same way and eisenhower's job became you know to rein patton in and you know patton didn't take kindly to that so they they had their It was a very complex relationship by the time we get to 1944, 1945. You know, Eisenhower had pardoned Patton for slapping soldiers and speaking out of line in May 1944 about uh, the Soviet presence in the post-war world. But, um, you know, Eisenhower had a very different job to do than Patton, and they were approaching them from two different angles. And, you know, Patton could not have done what Eisenhower did as far as— being a diplomat and, and commanding the the entire expeditionary force in Europe, but at the same time, um, Eisenhower could never have done what Patton did. And you know Patton's genius as a general um, compares with with Eisenhower's genius as a general, but they just had two different skill sets. It's it's hard to describe,
0: and you spend a lot of time on this on this figure. I'm going to describe him as a tragic figure. I've read a little bit about him before, but you take it into new depths really in some in some sentences and some language I'd never read. And that's Nazi German or German field marshal Erwin Rommel. You know, he's he's kind of made famous somewhat, but also by the movie Patton, because Patton thinks he's such a genius. You magnificent bastard. I read your book. <laughs> I think it's the quote. Yep. And Rommel was very well respected by Everybody. But you take the time in your book to talk a little bit about his conversion, the fact that he never joined the Nazi party, but him realizing that the war is just simply over and his implicit participation in the July 20, 1944 assassination plot. Why did you want to make Rommel such such an important part of your book?
1: Well, I'm a big fan of the narrative thread. And when I did the the prequel to taking Berlin was taking Paris, Mm -hmm. which talks about, you know, May May 1940. It opens with May 1940, and the the first chapter is is Rommel as the Germans are attacking through the Ardennes Forest. And he's, he's leading men on the bank of the Meuse River, and the Germans are punching through, and, you know, later on their way to capture all of France. And I was taken with his his skills as a leader and his relentlessness and then as you, especially as you go on into the desert in his battles with Montgomery at El Alamein um he's just i don't think there's such a thing you know I don't want to use the term a good Nazi but he was more of a military figure than a political figure and i wanted to show the german side to it but then um again it's it's always a, a writer's you know you know dream whenever you see people who've left behind extensive uh, diaries and journals, and people have a, a good opinion of them. And then, because when you, you look at what Rommel, Rommel had a lot of hope for the German cause. You know, he came back from North Africa. He was kind of banished. There was a lot of jealousy in the German officer ranks for the for the great things Rommel had done, and they kind of wanted to put him in his place. Hitler had lost his faith in Rommel, but Rommel was trying to get it back. His last ditch effort to really salvage his career. Was to build the atlantic wall which is supposed to keep the the allies out of normandy and he did a fantastic job a lot of those obstacles were were and the new fortica- fortifications built were you know at, at the behest of rommel but you know once the the allies gained a toehold in in france and in particular when his own when his when his car was shot up by a uh, canadian air uh, canadian royal air force spitfire and he was sent to the hospital he had a lot of time to think he had a lot of time to think about the the shape of the war in the future of Germany, and as someone who was more of a patriot to Germany than than a patriot to Adolf Hitler, he was privately hoping that Hitler would find a way to sue for peace, and maybe serve a jail term of some kind, and you know, and and put you know, not let Germany get destroyed or partitioned by the Soviets. So, I liked including Rommel in this book. And what was nice was that you know, when he was sent home after he was injured was the time he 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 spent with his son Manfred. And the fact that he, by talking to his son, he could voice a lot of the the doubts and fears that he had that you would not normally hear a general say, because if, if he said it to another individual, it might get back to the powers that be that, you know, he could be convicted of treason. Instead, he was able to have long philosophical discussions with his sons about, about warfare and the shape of warfare and the shape of post-war Germany, and there's a real poignance to it, particularly when when Manfred is there, when, when Rommel is eventually taken away and forced to, to commit suicide by, by, by Hitler.
0: Another figure in the book who I'd heard of, but did not know a lot about, you detail one of the one of the really strong points of the book. And we're talking with a selling author, Martin Dugard, about his book, Taking Berlin, the Bloody Race to Defeat the Third Reich. And I'm going to ask you a little bit about some of these later, but you have several, and I'm going to call them vignettes for lack of a better term, about personal bravery and leadership as the allies are, are traversing eastward from Normandy. And one of the ones that struck me is your, is your narrative look at General James Gavin who commanded airborne troops, 82nd airborne. Was that right? Did I get, remember that right? 82nd. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was in the army for three years. Thank God. I never dropped out of a plane <laughs> never volunteered to do so, but you read about some of these stories and they're just, you just wonder how these people ever slept at night, but you mentioned Gavin quite a bit. Why do you, why did you decide to make him so prominent in your book?
1: Well, you know, um, the thing about this last year of the war is that you have all these huge battles, you know, let's just take on the Western Front, forget, forget the Soviet stuff. But you've got D-Day, you've got Market Garden, you've got the Battle of the Bulge. Um, these are all a book into themselves, you know, and I could I could have spent page after page talking about, you know, troop placements and where, where we attacked and where we counterattacked and and, and that's all well and good and uh, there are people that write books like that very, very well. but I find that I you know I like to write books that are very fast moving that are very immediate that put the reader there with, uh, with in the action. so you you feel like you're part of it. And the best way to do that is to focus on the individual instead of the overwhelming, you know numbers of, of people that are on a battlefield. So in the case of Gavin, He's a great guy to write about because, you know, he dropped onto Sicily. He jumped into Normandy. He was, you know, the first out the door all the time. He jumped in Market Garden. You know, he led he led men in, in a famous crossing of the Wall River that we saw in the movie, A uh, Bridge Too Far. Um, and on top of that, he, he was 37 years old. It, he was a two-star general at 37. He was a a kid who'd grown up as an orphan and, you know, raised by adoptive parents, got, got himself through West Point and rose through the ranks and was a superior leader of men. And and it was just great to weave him into the story. So you know, with Patton, you have armor. With with Gavin, you have the emerging airborne unit, which was not a thing before World War II. Um, You know, with we'll probably talk about Martha Gellhorn in a bit. I like having a journalist in there, but I'll tell you that about that in a bit. But it's just nice to have these different facets of individuals. Tell see the war through their story, and it kind of helps propel the action along. Because if you have a guy like Gavin, who jumps on D-Day, and then, you know, that's June 1944. Then you have Garden, which is September 1944. He's at the Battle of the Bulge, December 1944. He's about to be in Operation Victory that would have been the, the drop on Berlin that never happened. So you have this narrative thread. I can just poke him into the, the narrative as as in, in the real-time action that paralleled what happened in the war. So worked out very well in that respect.
0: I confess I had never heard of Martha Gellhorn. Um, I had heard of her husband, (laughs) who is Ernest Hemingway at this time during World War II. Uh, You mentioned wanting to have a journalist in there. There are lots of men, quite frankly, you could have chosen. Uh, She certainly comes off as having as much moxie as anyone else you describe, except maybe the people who who are rowing past rivers and charging machine gun nests. Uh, why did you choose her tell us a little bit about her a and, and b why did you choose her
1: to tell you the truth i was going to choose i wanted to do put hemingway in there so it would have been great because we would have had you know the cover of the book would have been you know gavin and in patton and churchill and hemingway i mean these you know other than other than gavin and the three, of, three of the four of those are very iconic individuals But to tell you the truth, Hemingway was kind of a shit uh, during the war. He was not, he got a lot of fame for liberating Paris, which he did, but he really wasn't the character I was looking for. I just didn't, I didn't find him consistent. And he wasn't in the war long enough. He, you know, for instance, Martha Gellhorn, his third wife, who was a great journalist in her her own right, she wanted to get to D-Day so badly. Then they weren't allowing women to go on, on land that she stood away on a hospital ship and, and helped tend to the wounded and actually went ashore at night to look for the wounded bodies to take them back to the hospital ship. Whereas Hemingway watched the landings on a, on a naval vessel, you know, miles offshore. Two different, two different ways to get to the story. And, you know, afterwards Hemingway went back to his hotel, whereas Gelhorn continued traveling around the European theater. And just like I said with Gavin, where Gavin was in all these different operations – well, Gellhorn pops up in all these things, too. She's at D-Day. She's at Market Garden. She's at the Battle of the Bold. She's in all these places. And, and and then as I began to read her writing and I got to know her as a character, I developed a, a profound uh, respect for her courage. And some people have read the book and they're saying, you know, why would you put a woman in a war zone? It's because she was in the war zone. She and was she, in the
0: war zone. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah. she wasn't on the periphery. She was in there.
1: Absolutely right. Her. When I was doing the, the research, I, I found her, her house. She had a she had a flat in in London in the Chelsea area. And uh it was raining, you know, and I, but I found I found her place just to say that i had been there. But it was pouring rain. So my wife and I took refuge on her porch, which was covered. And the person who lives there now came home and found us <laughs> sitting on their porch. And we just explained we were there to sit out on the rain. But I kind of I got this connection with Gellhorn. I mean I I realized that it, by sitting on her porch, I was sitting in a place where she had walked through days to day, you know, day after day, and she'd use the same handrail and pushed open the same door. It was kind of cool, you know, just to kind of get that connection with the character.
0: Not to be a complete spoiler, but she and General Gavin commence a love affair. Did you know that fact before you started to weave her into the book?
1: Or did you just all of a sudden go, Oh? Yeah, yeah. No, it was that. It was that. And I'll tell you what, that's one of those great. Uh, it's one of those days where you're you're working and you're trying to put together a story. And all of a sudden you realize that that they had a connection and it just, it's a a little bit mind blowing because all of a sudden it's like, wow, we got a story here. And, and what happened was, you know, she met him um, in Nijmegen right after market garden when she was there to file a story. And, you know, she went out about her business, just like he went about his business throughout the war. You know, he, he was, you know, um, transferred to Sison in France for, for his men to regroup and train. You know, she went on to Italy to cover some stuff in Italy. She covered other battles in the war, but she kind of always made her way back and found him. And she wasn't really a camp follower per se. She just was having this, this fling with the general. It was a very fiery romance. They had some epic, epic fights. Um, and they, But you know, the great mystery to me was the specific dates. Like when did they meet? When, when did they get together? and another thing that just kind of came out of the blue literally a month before i finished the book i got someone reached out from the gavin estate they were publishing his wartime journals that had never been published before hmm. he 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 typed them with a little portable field typewriter and so everything was very it wasn't in his handwriting it was very easy to read so i actually got a hold of his journal so i i found out just as the book went into production that, for instance, they met on October 15th, 1944. So that's in the book. And, and then, you know, then there's all his comments about her. He calls her Mrs. Hemingway at first. And then, then you look at his letters to her, and both of them were just crazy about each other. But this is going on in the middle. These are two of the most influential people of the war. And this is going on in the middle of frontline fighting. It's remarkable.
0: You start your book with Normandy. And the planning for the invasion and and how it took place. I read a terrific book. I believe it was by Craig Simons about just the logistically, the logistic plan, operational plan for D-Day. Everything they had to do to actually make it happen. I stopped reading your book, got on my desktop computer, and just watched Saving Private Ryan again. And it helped me get in the mindset of what you were describing. And then I'm glad I did, because some of your descriptions of what the men went through and endured are are the best that I've ever read. Thank you. Normandy. You said it a few minutes ago, take the Russian front out of it, which is just almost incomprehensible in so many ways. But Normandy, we look back now. Well, of course, they invaded France. They've been trying to. Of course, they overwhelmed the Germans. And to quote the Duke of Wellington, it was a near-run thing. How close did the Normandy invasion come to
1: failing? Well, I think if if Rommel had had his way, and he'd had um, more Panzer divisions sent to the, to Normandy instead of Calais, and even you know even after the invasion, Hitler was convinced that the main that that was a feint, that the main invasion was going to come at Calais. I think it would have been a much different a much different battle and I don't think uh we would have been thrown back into the sea but I think it would have been one of those engagements where we fought on a very narrow strip of land with with horrific losses before finally breaking through I just think that instead of you know getting off the beaches and really starting to push inland by August which you know two months after the invasion I think it would have been more like a five or six month fight Actually, very much like Montgomery went through when he tried to when he was you know he was supposed to capture Ken, which is a small city right off the Norman coast, and he was stuck there for months. And just because the Germans had a pocket of of resistance there, Um, you know, again one of those one of those research things. I I went, I'd I'd been to you know the American Cemetery, been to D-Day before or Normandy before, but um, as part of the research, I, I went I went back there in February of this year. Yeah, which is if, if you're gonna go to Normandy, don't go in the summer because the roads are narrow and it's full of tourists and tour buses. But if you go in February, nobody's there. And you can really take your time and you can go over all of the sites and they, they'll they'll show you where all the the sectors were, you know, like Dog Red and you know where Omaha was and Juno and Sword and all those. But um I've got this moment in the book where General Norman Cotto leads men up off the beach. Um, you know, he was the famous saying, Rangers lead the way. And during this last trip, I stood at that spot and you realize how small that crescent of beaches is, is when the tide, even when the tide is out and had you had all this men and material and these explosions. And then, you know, the, my wife took a picture of me standing on the road and I, I realized that that road, the place I was standing, that was landmines and barbed wire. And, you know, German snipers zeroed in on on those specific places from the the bluffs overlooking it. Just a very, very slender place to do such an amazing landing and invasion. And it was such it's even to this day, you can you can feel the ghosts. It's powerful. I would also say if
0: you're going to I was there like 25 years ago, maybe if you go take your Kleenex. I don't care how (laughs) tough I don't care how tough you think you are. Take your tissues. Cause you're going to need them Uh, not to digress, but I I posted something on social media a couple of years ago that I haven't watched the Oscars since saving private Ryan lost the best picture Oscar to the egregious Shakespeare in love. What do you think of that? You don't have to skip the Oscars (laughs) on my behalf, but what do you think as you first, do you remember watching that movie the first time and how do you think it holds up for the back next, you know, almost 20 years after it was released?
1: You know, I think the first 20 minutes uh, hold up. I would just actually just watched it again recently. And you know, some of the best, you, you know, the, I don't care, not even just wartime movie, just the best um, movie making you can imagine. I mean, just the realism of that moment and just the way it was shot. Um, you know, if you, if you watch the rest of the movie, the rest of the movie is pretty much just, a, it's a straightforward you know, cowboy movie, we're going to go in and, you know, you know, rescue the hero and get him out. And it's, it's a very entertaining movie, but we watched the movie for the first 20 minutes.
0: There's actually on YouTube videos of people watching the movie for the first time and reacting to the movie. And it's it's interesting to see how many people just break down like, Oh my God, I had no idea this was coming. Um, I watched the movie with my mother who was in the Marine Corps and it was the only movie I've ever been to that at the end, nobody left. Oh yeah. you like know There wasn't some big rush to get up and throw your popcorn away. People were just kind of sitting there like, Oh my God, what did I just see?
1: You know what? When I, I first saw the movie, I, I had a friend who worked for um, the, uh, Steven Spielberg's production company. And so he was on the list for the, the pre, you know, the screening, the industry screenings. And it was the same way. Usually if you go to an industry screening at the agents will work, the work, the the room until it's time for the the movie to start. Then as soon as it's over, everybody starts, you know, kind of, you know, deal making and, and just, you know, kind of making nice um, two movies. It was um, Saving Private Ryan and um, Schindler's List were the exceptions to the rule. Everybody, Was dead silent. Everybody watched the credits all the way through, and just left. Nobody hung out in the lobby. Nobody, um, you know, was you couldn't see people doing deals or you know, it it just it it was totally silent. It was crazy.
0: You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction. Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. I should mention that the patriarch of McAllister Machinery, Mr. McAllister, whose first name is was Pershing, was actually part of the D-Day invasion or the D-Day landings in North Africa in November,
1: 1942.
0: Oh, that's good. Of your, we are here with Martin Dugard, the author of Taking Berlin, The Bloody Race to Defeat the Third Reich. You mentioned your writing. I agree with you. I have a hard time like reading these 600 and 700 page books about one battle, right? Like I just can't keep all the divisions and brigades and battalions straight. It's almost... Your book, in that sense, was a relief, even though I'm like, okay, now, which army is this? But getting into the granular part of any war involves discussing what happens to the men. How did you decide how much sort of sanguinary passages to include, and and why did you choose the ones you chose?
1: That's a good question. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot to warfare. I would, I've never been in combat and I've just read enough and spoken to enough people. There's, there's, there's a lot, you know, it's a very uh, isolated human experience. I mean, people, even in the middle of, of like, if you're in a foxhole, for instance, you still got to eat, you still have to go to the bathroom. So, you know, how much do I want to make out of people, you know, going to the bathroom and they're in their, in their ration kit you know or or people uh you know having to have, having to, to pee inside a foxhole you know stuff like that um and then when, when people get hurt you know when we you know we have the term missing in action very often missing in action means that an artillery shell land on your position and there's nothing left of you but you know pink vapor so you know there's you just have to find a balance you know obviously the stuff going on in d-day was you know like german snipers talked but how much they enjoyed pulling the trigger. Meanwhile, imagining that every time they pulled the trigger, that was going to be a telegram going home to some family somewhere in America saying that their son was dead and that they were, that that individual was responsible for it. So, you know, you kind of want it, I want it to be real. I want to, I want to be able to, to, to point out all those things and you know, for instance, there are no bathrooms in a tank. So, if you know, if you talk to tank commanders, people talk about <laughs> being able to go to the bathroom right in front of all their buddies and not thinking twice about it. Um, but if if you if you mention that once, people go, ooh, that that's that's tough. But if you mention it like three or four times, people like so people are like, okay, we get it. You know, so you've got to find where to, where to insert these things because they're going to have an impact. They're going to, people will remember those moments, but you don't want to be known as the the author who talks about, you know, people becoming pink, pink mist. That's just not, there's the, there's too much at some point.
0: Let me say for the, for those of you who haven't read the book, but will read the book that, uh, that Mr. Dugard strikes the balance really well. He throws in just enough sort of, Oh, God, I guess they would have to go to the bathroom, wouldn't they? Uh, along with uh, descriptions of of combat. My son, uh, Joshua, did two tours in Afghanistan as 11 Bravo, 11 Bang Bang, combat Infantryman, And I said, you know, I asked him one time, how would you describe it? And his response was, I'd rather not. Oh, so, yeah. And so... Were there any particular acts of bravery? You describe? so many of them in the book, including several mentions of Medal of Honor recipients. And we've been lucky enough to have a Medal of Honor recipient on the Leaders and Legend podcast. And that's uh, Sammy Davis here from Indiana, who mm. received his in Vietnam, actually is the inspiration for Forrest Gump in the movie when you see tom hanks getting the medal of honor from El- from president johnson it's actually sammy davis with uh, tom hanks's head yeah. <laughs> on his body uh, were there one or two acts of bravery that you encountered and detailed or chronicled in your book that just left you agape like how in the hell did this guy survive or even if he didn't where did he find the courage to do what he did.
1: Uh, You know what, what I was doing when I was like, again, I was trying to find individuals to kind of move the story forward. And I wanted to keep it, you know, with, for instance, you know, patents with the third army. So I wanted to highlight moments of courage within the third army. So I, I looked up medal of honor recipients who were part of Patton's third army. And so we, I had two individuals in particular and I, you know, Bud Hawk was one of them. He was a, a guy who just did this crazy thing during the the battle for the fell pocket where he basically served as a artillery coordinator for two you know tank destroyer companies shooting at the germans but put himself out in the open and and continue to fight even after you know the the battle was you know almost done it was just crazy brave stuff and and the, the cool thing about these things is that a lot of these world war ii guys who got the medal of honor uh, recorded their story on video, and you can find them if you look online. A lot of YouTube stuff. They hear these guys talk about what they did, and they're really just normal guys. You know, they're just people. Normal people. They all people doing they became UAW members after the war, right? Yeah, they right. Yeah, build the were, post-war American world. <laughs> they were the guys, They had a can of Bud, and they had the the hat on, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> hey, speaking, of, I've, I've got to ask you just often. Oh, now, where in Indiana are you? Indianapolis. Oh, okay. My dad was stationed at Bunker Hill Air Force Base, which became Grissom Air Force oh, Grissom, Base. Grissom, yeah, yeah. So we we lived there when I was a kid. So uh, my dad used to fly B fifty eights. It was but anyway. That's that's. Oh that's yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so, you know
0: you mentioned that about the combat vets, and uh, I was uh, Sammy Davis. You know, he's very matter of fact about what he did, and then you read about what he did, and you're like, how do you sleep? Like, how do you possibly yeah. function? Uh, But another person I knew who's, and you'll know this story too, sir, is uh, uh, we grew up with a family on the east side in Irvington here in Indianapolis uh, named the O'Donnells. And the patriarch of the O'Donnells, James O'Donnell, was on the USS Indianapolis. Oh, no kidding. Wow. And we were all just petrified of him. For lots of reasons. Matter of fact, I tell the story. My brother was his newspaper man and never collected from him because he was too (laughs) scared to knock on the door. That's funny. But but a lot of these, to your point about these testimonials, you know, you watch a documentary about the movie Jaws and they get to the USS Indianapolis scene and then they have Indianapolis survivors on the documentary saying that they did they didn't know it was coming and they're they're watching the movie and all of a sudden. In a couple of cases, they talk about how they started to break down, and their grandkids or kids are with them. Are like, what? What's what's going on? Like, yeah. the shark's not even in the movie. Like, what are you crying for? Yeah, and so these chronicles and and other things in pop culture help bring out the stories of these veterans, and it's a terrific part of your book how you detail how some people just found the courage to do things that you just couldn't possibly do in ordinary life.
1: Yeah, you know what I, you know it's 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 to me it's a little bit crazy because a lot of these people had a lot to lose and you know I, I chronicle the story of a of a medic who just you know basically he was just a medic all he had to do was just take care of people and carry stretchers and he would have gone home just fine but you know when the Germans open up on a boat full of wounded in the middle of a river he swims to the boat you know drags the boat to shore then you know helps carry the wounded to safety I mean really where do you get the in- Inspiration to do that at some point it just has to you don't need you, i think you, you can't think about it you know also in the book you talk about the you know the japanese american soldiers who who fought you know in europe and their acts of courage were just insane just the just the way they put themselves out there and in the in the battle i describe in, in the book you know i think i think five of those guys won the medal of honor it it was it was i wouldn't say miraculous it was just Just spontaneous acts of of amazing courage.
0: And that's the 442nd? Yeah. Uh, Looking at it from a geopolitical, sort of a larger context, did the United States, did the Western allies make a mistake by not emphasizing and prioritizing the taking of Berlin? And do you think if Eisenhower or not Churchill, because he was screaming, if Roosevelt and and Eisenhower had a chance to do it over again, they would make the same decision?
1: I don't think they would. You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, I talk a lot of, in, in, the, in the back of the book. I mentioned that, um, you know, what Putin is doing in, in Ukraine. Um, you know, just, you know, Roosevelt got played by Stalin. You know, Roosevelt was the most political individual you can imagine and yet when it came to dealing with stalin he he believed that this this ruthless uh barbarian dictator was going to do the right thing and you know and by not pushing through we basically we, you know we we enslaved eastern europe for 40 plus years and you know what what putin's doing right now and in the fact that it, it's such a it's it's a page straight out of stalin's playbook and it it, it as yes, an historian, I, I watch it and I, I almost want to, you know, throw things at the TV because can't, can't people see that events are replaying themselves and, and we need to take the same authoritarian stance that, that Truman eventually took. You know, it's just, it it, it was, um, we made a big mistake at the end of the war and Patton wanted to keep going. Patton was convinced that we'd take all the Nazis who we had in all those prison camps and we put them to work and they go fight the Russians and that would have been the war.
0: And that part of the that parts in the movie where he says we're going to have to fight him eventually, and I turned out not to be right, but in a sense, in the larger sense, might as well do it here while we got while may as well fight them here while we are here. Um, you mentioned you obliquely referenced the Yalta Conference in February of of forty four. It's pretty forty five. Excuse me. It's pretty fair to say that's not Franklin Roosevelt's finest hour. Why do you think that he? I don't want to say romanticized Uncle Joe as he called him, Uncle Joe Stalin, but not but he just never seemed to be the the one and and it's clear in any book that you've read about Stalin, any book that you've read about Yalta that Stalin clearly treated Roosevelt differently than he treated Churchill, a whole different level of respect for sure. But it just surprised me that Roosevelt didn't go, well you know, Stalin's probably killed as many of his own citizens as Hitler killed uh, Soviet citizens. So we probably can't
1: take his word for things. But yet he did. He did. Um, You know, it was it was you know, you talk about that balance. You know, everybody knew and it was sad. Churchill was working so hard to keep Britain in the mix as one of the relevant nations in as a global power. And, but everybody knew, you know, Roosevelt and Stalin knew it was going to be America and the Soviet Union in the post-war world. You know, we we propped up the Soviet Union with, with Lend-Lease We're the reason the Soviet Union still existed. And I think naively, and it's hard to use the word naive when you, when you talk about Franklin Roosevelt, that he believed that he could deal with Stalin, that, you know, that the Stalin would not be an issue after the war. And gosh, if you go to if you go to some of the, uh, like, for instance, if you go to Budapest, in the, the War Museum in Budapest, there's a special section uh, dedicated to all the the, the political, the, the soldiers taken captive by the Soviets during the battle for, for Budapest, um, who never came home. They were just basically taken deep into Russia, into the gulags, uh, where, where some of them returned, but most of them were never seen again. And so the Soviets weren't interested in being anybody's friend. They just wanted to get rid of all all well, their enemies and anybody who stood in their way. And Roosevelt couldn't see that.
0: You do a terrific job of describing the lead up to what we call the Battle of the Bulge, which starts on, on December 16th, December, 19, yeah, 1944. 1944. And same date as the Boston Tea Party, just a few years before. But how did. How did Patton get that right? I know the answer because I read your book, but I would like for you to describe <laughs> this, this amazing bit of military intelligence on behalf of Patton's staff. Again, to reference the movie, there's the meeting where Patton says, I can attack with three divisions in 48 hours or something. And everybody looks at him like, are you crazy? And the Carl Malden plane uh omar bradley goes i'd give myself a little leeway if i were you and Patton just replies my staff's already worked out the plans yeah (laughs) and so to read it in your book and put the two of those things together
1: was just it was mesmerizing well you know um Patton was a huge believer in the power of intelligence and oscar k-o-c-h cocker coach um who was his his intelligence officer um his g3 he he basically had spent a lot of. He was at the forefront of modern military intelligence. You know, he interrogated prisoners. He looked at maps. You know, he he knew every river. He knew every every uh, production. He you know he looked at train schedules and, and saw what you know which trains are going where from which factory to where. So he knew where the German troops were. He knew where they might be. Um, and long before the Battle of the Bulge, he noticed, is you know, I think it was back as October, that the Germans were once again massing forces near the Ardennes Forest, just like they did in May 1940. And but he just couldn't find them. And so he told Patton, he said, "Look, we're gonna." He, Patton was supposed to do a completely different operation, going going due east. And Instead, you know, he was he was told, "Yeah, we can do this, but be prepared because we may have to pivot, you know, ninety degrees north." And go go rescue, you know. It, it turns out it was a Bastogne where, we, where he had to rescue people. Um, and when you think of the size of an army, you know, Third Army is that's a hundred thousand people. You know, and, and that's that's tanks, that's artillery pieces, that's food, that's transport. It's all that stuff. It's just not something that automatically pivots like that. And for them to to pull it off and, and to rescue everybody in Bastogne on you know December twenty fifth, it's pretty remarkable is the battle of the bulge
0: you're gonna hate this maybe to me the gettysburg is overrated as a dispositive battle maybe not a dispositive event but as a dispositive battle i'm a believer that the battle of shiloh is the most important battle of the civil war is is the battle of the bulge overhyped or could it if the germans had been able to be successful what do you think it would
1: have, how would it have altered the war? Um. Well, two questions there. So the first one is like, I, I don't think it's overhyped, but I, th- I think it gets that overhyped reputation because it was such a surprise. We were supposed to be, you know, about to conquer the German nation and, you know, go to Berlin and, you know, Pat and Montgomery are fighting about who gets to get there first, who gets all the men and material. and when they tore in, when the Germans tore into the American lines with that first artillery salvo, which I think came in came like four fifty-five in the morning or something like that, you know, it was a bitter cold time in that that part of the world. It was one of the coldest winters on record, and a lot of the troops that were stationed there were troops that were on kind of on R and R. They've they've been they'd been hit pretty hard at places like the Battle of the Hurtgen Forest, and they were just relaxing. They were recovering. So when the Germans came through there, nobody was ready for it. And it was one of those rare times in the history of World War II where American forces um, just turned and ran, you know, and, and this was aimed at the American lines. It had very little to do with the British. So, And so for Americans to to turn tail like that, I think that that's where we get the thing about the Battle of the Bulge being important. And let's face it, if you have something called the Battle of the Bulge, that alliteration for some reason that sticks in people's head. You know, if you if you want to look at a really grisly battle, look at Hurtgen Forest which nobody pays attention to. Um, the second part of your question, I can't remember what you, what you asked. What,
0: if, if let's just say that the the German forces had a victory that was of the same proportion of their as their eventual defeat, maybe they reach Antwerp, for example, as you talk about in your book, uh,
1: how would it have changed the war? Well, that's the thing. So Hitler was trying to drive, he was, the purpose of the Battle of the Bulge was to drive a wedge between Montgomery's forces in the north and Patton's forces in the south, and so the Germans were going to push the salient all the way, you know, through the Ardennes forest all the way back across the Low Countries, you know, into Antwerp. Which would, and if they could have held that, you know, you'd have you'd have just the German army between the American and the British armies, and then Hitler was was going to sue for peace, allegedly. So, if he could have pulled that off. You know, I'm not sure he. I'm not sure he, his designs on peace would have had any kind of, any effect. I think we're we're so bent on you know total surrender, that there was no way that Hitler would have been allowed to sue for peace. But if the Germans could have taken and held that kind of ground, they would have had a complete corridor through which to shift men and material at any time during the war, which would have changed the whole shape of how we would have been fighting the war you know all of a sudden the germans would still be holding germany but then all of a sudden they'd be holding this this corridor all the way to the to the ocean and it yeah it would have been different would have made for a very exciting uh 1945
0: (laughs) (laughs) i say i want to ask you before we get to the five questions which i promise are harmless we ask of all of our guests um, at the end of your book you you go into some detail about the discovery of the concentration camps, particularly Dachau as, as, as a historian, how do you handle that topic in the sense that, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, you could tell grizzly story after grizzly story and include, you know, dozens of, of numbing pictures. You include one, two, two babies uh, killed. How did you decide to, to handle that? So you handle it very matter-of-factly, yet it still has impact. I thought it was a terrific way to sort of include something that needs to be included without dwelling on it.
1: Well, I, I think it's best when you let um, the eyewitnesses in. In this case, it was it was Gavin and Gellhorn. I was going to use Patton. Patton had a, a moment you know, with the concentration camp liberation. But, when people saw those things for the first time, it was, they were appalled. You know, they had never seen anything like that before. And rather than try to describe it, you know, you know, for instance, I've been to Dachau and it's, it's, it's big, you know, it's big. And you can imagine these bunkhouses filled with, with people. Then you, you go to the, the section of Dachau, which was, was reserved for, for torture and beatings and, and firing squads. And you go, and it's just, it's so much, you know, and so rather than take my experiences where by the time I got done, I was just numb. I mean, you know, for instance, if you take the train out of Munich into Dachau, you get off the train station. It's the same train station where, where all the Jews got off in, during the war. Mm. It's a two-mile walk through city streets to the camp. So, the, you know, the people of Dachau could not say they didn't know what was going on because it's, they saw all these people walking past them all the time with, you know, you know, people, you know, soldiers with dogs and guns beating them, you, you know, you can't get away from that. So but rather than put it through my filter, it's easier to, to put it through, like, you know, Gavin's point of view or or Gelhorn when she went to Dachau. And, and I highly encourage everyone, if you get, get a chance to go to Europe, go to a concentration camp. But um, just be ready because it's it's an overwhelming um it's it's just it's a numbing. It's just it's just hard. You know, it's just one of those those things that is it's certainly not Disneyland.
0: And it's certainly not like, you know, Gavin and Gelhorn were at Disney World. Right. And all of a sudden saw this. They had seen combat and men die and all these, you know, all the bloody hatefulness of, of violence, of war. But yet the, the concentration camp knocked them back on their heels in a completely different way.
1: Well, you, you got to remember. I mean, war is war, and this was one of the last total wars. I mean, the kind of biblical style warfare where you marched through a, an enemy, you you killed the enemy, you took their capital, you killed their king. That was World War II. It was that kind of battle? But I think within within that construct, people are ready for the things that you see in war. What you are, what they were not ready for, was to see. Uh, the The barbarism visited upon innocent civilians, especially children. that's that that's kind of outside what what I think even even at the height of the of the whole Nazi German thing, it was unbelievable to people that that these things could have could have happened
0: a great reaction if you read his biography or books is. Eisenhower, who wrote back and said, you've got to see this. When he saw the concentration camps, he wrote back to D.C., his superiors and say, no, 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 you have to you have to come see this. You have to know that this happened, because if we don't, then they'll say it never happened.
1: Right. And he was with Patton that day. They were together on that day. So it was even, you know, Patton, a guy who had been a warrior his whole life, was stunned, just completely stunned.
0: We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Martin Dugard, are you ready? Let's go. What was your first job? <laughs>
1: uh, I was a high school I was in high school, I was a summer camp counselor. What was your first concert? Ted Nugent. Hey, that's pretty good. Lakeshore Amphitheater, Marquette, Michigan.
0: Yep. That was pretty cool. Oh and he was in his home state so I'm sure he was I'm sure he was extra loud. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose?
1: The book I give out all the time as a gift is Dispatches by Michael Herr, H E R R. It is the best book I've ever read about warfare. It's about the Vietnam War. If you could
0: witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which
1: event would you choose? the crucifixion without a doubt I just uh having written about uh the crucifixion i have so many questions about what actually took place and where it took place um and and just uh you know when you when you go through the the beating and the crown of thorns and then uh it'd be horrible but i want to see that
0: i should tell you that i had a uh breakfast meeting this morning with a client and she is reading Killing Jesus. And she says, I literally cannot put this book down.
1: Oh, good. (laughs) Well, I've done my job. By the way, that was a tough book to write. It's a really, it it was such a, that was a weird time in history as far as their people were not nice to each other. Did Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the, did did he get it right? I have to admit that I've never seen it um, I don't want to see it. And that's, that's why it's just, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a man, I'm a man of faith. I don't, I don't need to see Christ hung on the cross. Friends of mine walked out
0: during the scourging They're like, we just simply couldn't take. And people were screaming at the, at the screen. Yeah. Stop, stop. Oh yeah. I've never seen it either. It just must be powerful. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Bruce Springsteen. Who else? (laughs) (laughs) Which song, he gets to sing one song. Which song would you make him sing? Oh, Badlands, for sure. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, The Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Martin Dugard, author of Taking Berlin, The Bloody Race to Defeat the Third Reich. You will notice Mr. Dugard is also the co-author with Bill O'Reilly of several of the killing books that have sold literally millions of copies Uh, Your Taking Berlin book is terrific. I learned a lot. Very, very happy to have you on the podcast and grateful.
1: Oh, thanks. I had a great time. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to
0: Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at Strategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com